Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Throw another load on and watch the sparks fly. Like a thousand worries disappearing. Cause the world looks better with the ones you love. Throw another log on the fire. Well, that's my line, Jessica. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Down by the Bonfire by Jessica Hanna. This Mansfield area singer-songwriter is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, I'm guessing you've heard of Anthony and Nathaniel Cook. Yeah, those brother serial killers from Toledo. That's them. It was really unusual because they're black, and serial killers tend to be white. And I, if I remember right, their MO was mostly young couples. They right. killed pairs who were out on dates or something like that, or raped a girlfriend, then killed them both. Yeah, exactly. There were a dozen victims, including nine dead in less than a year and a half, from 1980 into 1981. It was a horrifying period for Lucas County, but we didn't even know who was responsible for a long, long time. Well, tonight's story isn't really about them, but there is something of a connection. So let me tell you about them first. Anthony and Nathaniel Cook were born in Mobile, Alabama, after which they and seven other siblings were moved to Ohio as children. Their father abandoned them, and they were raised in a very poor and racially segregated neighborhood in Toledo. Anthony Cook would later say he developed a hatred for whites that only grew after he was imprisoned for robbery in 1974 and was subjected to physical and psychological abuse by white prison guards and inmates. His brother, Nathaniel, didn't originally start down that path. He had no real problems with the law and didn't abuse alcohol or drugs. He had a good job as a driver, earning a good salary. But when Anthony was released from prison in 1979, he started spending more time with his younger brother. And Nathaniel changed. Soon, the two of them embarked 
on a racially motivated crime spree. The official case records their first murder on May 14, 1980. They attacked 24-year-old Thomas Gordon and his 18-year-old girlfriend in northern Toledo. They abducted them, drove them to some woodlands in Lucas County, raped and stabbed the girl, and chased Thomas as he fled for his life. They shot Thomas in the back with a rifle. The girl survived. They next assaulted and killed a 19-year-old Michigan hitchhiker named Connie Sue Thompson, after which they threw her body off a bridge in January of 1981. And then kidnapped a 12-year-old girl, Dawn Renee Backus, who was tortured for hours in an abandoned theater. Then Anthony Cook did a few more murders on his own. In March of 1981, he kidnapped and killed another couple, Scott Moulton and Denise Sajatkowski, who were taken from an apartment building in the Toledo suburb of Oregon. And then in August, he killed Daryl Cole and Stacy Balanek by beating them both to death with a baseball bat. A month after that, Anthony Cook tried to kill yet another couple, Todd Sabo and Leslie Sawicki. They fought back and even managed to get position of his gun. Leslie called her father, Peter, for help. But while waiting for police to arrive, they struggled again. And Anthony Cook managed to get his gun back. He killed the father, Peter Sawicki, and wounded the young man before he fled. He wasn't free for long. In less than a month, police found and arrested Anthony Cook for that last attack. Now, they had no evidence tying Anthony to any other crime, and they had no idea about Nathaniel Cook's involvement in other rapes and murders. So Anthony was convicted of the only thing they had, the shooting death of Peter Sawicki, the dad who had come to the rescue of his daughter and her boyfriend, Anthony Cook was sentenced to life in prison for that. But while the passage of time in a criminal case is generally a bad thing, we have learned that in many cases, time is exactly what was needed to allow science to catch up. In the mid-1990s, brother Nathaniel Cook was arrested for a minor offense and had to give a routine DNA sample. And that was the end. That donation of blood led to a two-decade-old trail of multiple rapes and murders. But the prosecutor wasn't convinced there was enough evidence to convict them on all those old cases, and the Cook brothers offered a deal. They would be willing to admit to every rape and murder they were responsible for and describe them in detail. And in exchange they would only be charged with the first one, Thomas Gordon, the boy who was shot in the back with a rifle as he fled them. The deal was struck. Anthony Cook got a second life term for that. He's in prison and he's never getting out. Nathaniel, however, was offered parole in 20 years. Crazy as it may seem, those 20 years came and went and Nathaniel Cook was released. He's living in Toledo. Tonight's story 
is about another unsolved murder. The Cook brothers never confessed to this one when they were being given a free pass to admit them all. It's not a case that has any evidence tying it to the Cooks either. And the murder victim wasn't a woman or a part of a couple, which was clearly their M.O. But it did occur just four days before the official beginning of the Cook Rampage. In an area not far from where one of their other crimes were committed, and the victim was a young white man shot in the back with a rifle, just as their first official victim would be four days later. So you might be able to understand why friends and family of Mark Anthony DiStefano just can't stop wondering, what if? This is Mark's story. We'll begin just after sunrise on May 10, 1980, a routine spring morning, and John Hansen left his home on Brown Road in Jerusalem Township, heading west for his job in North Toledo. Back then, Brown Road was a rural stretch with corn and soybean fields on both sides, so he kept his eyes peeled. He knew it was just the right time of day and the right kind of place for deer to dart out in front of traffic. He saw something, all right. As he approached the intersection with Lion Road, it was lying to the side, about 12 feet from the pavement. It wasn't a deer. It was a body. A boy or a young man, he thought. He quickly thought of his neighbor, who had autism. Had he gone out this early? Possibly been sideswiped by a car? But the closer he got, the more he realized this wasn't a boy he knew, and it didn't look like a hit and run. He rolled down his window as he approached. You all right, buddy? He said, even though it was clear he was not from the massive trauma on the back of his head. Hansen turned his car around and hurried back home, called 911, and officers from Toledo and the Lucas County Sheriff's Department responded. They soon identified the boy as Mark DiStefano. He was just 15. He'd been shot five times with a 22 caliber rifle, twice in the back, three times in the head. It looked like a robbery gone wrong. Mark's pockets were turned inside out. Mark lived just half a mile away on nearby Lion Road. He was the third of four siblings. Mike and Angela were older. Little Jacqueline was younger. The family were transplants from Connecticut. Their mom, Billy, had married a masonry business owner, Mike Halka, and he built them a home on Lion Road where there was plenty of property for the kids to play and roam. By all accounts, they were a happy family. Mark was an easygoing kid who doted on his baby sister. At 15, he was already six feet tall. His good looks and full head of dark hair turned the heads of his older sister's female friends, though he did have a steady girl. He had no enemies, his sister Angela told WTOL Channel 11 for an anniversary story on her brother's death just last year. 
He was full of life. He loved life. He always smiled. Nothing ever bothered him, and he was always cracking jokes. A close friend of Mark's brother, Mike, backed up that description. He was real mild-mannered, Calvin Jones told the reporter. He was not a problem child. That didn't mean he didn't test boundaries from time to time. On May 9, the day before he was killed, Mark was caught smoking in the bathroom, an act that got him banned from attending a year-end school dance at Eisenhower Junior High School. Instead, he went out to dinner with his brother Mike and Mike's wife. Then he was dropped off to hang out with friends at the home of a buddy, Larry Mentor, who lived on Howard Road. In the early morning hours, when just the three of them were left at the Mentor house, Mark, Larry, and another teen, they pulled out a bottle of vodka. It was so late, Larry suggested Mark just spend the night. But Mark said he needed to get home. He had to look after the German shepherd puppy his mom bought him the day before. And so at 4.30 in the morning, Mark stepped out of the house on Howard Road and began the walk home. His family's house on Lyon was a little more than two miles away. Howard and Lyon were connected by Route 2. Not a big deal. He was used to walking. Except he didn't make it. It was only two hours later when his body was found on the side of the road. Again, four days from this moment, the Cook brothers will begin their brutal crime spree. But right now, at this moment, Eastern Lucas County was not accustomed to dead bodies on the side of the road. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Speaking to Channel 11 last year, Captain Matt Lutke of the Lucas County Sheriff's Department showed the boxes of files in the DiStefano case. It was reinvestigated in 1987 and 2000. In 2018, Lutke pulled the cold case out of storage again and said he started as if it were day one. I've treated this case as if it happened last Sunday, as opposed to 40 years ago, he said. His investigation took him to other states and added many more interviews and papers to the old files. But the case remains unsolved. There are other theories. Mark's uncle, Jim Highmore, said he and his wife were at a party shortly after Mark's death and a guy there, his tongue loosened by a few shots of tequila, shared a chilling story. He had no idea he was talking to Mark's uncle when he broke into this tale of how he and his buddy had gone to get beer at Bono Tavern, then went to the pier. The pier was a popular destination for local youth. That's where they got into a fight with a Halka kid, the drunk man said. Halka. That's Mark's stepdad's name. 
He said the fight ended with his buddy shooting the Halka kid. Uncle Jim gave the information to a detective, but said he never heard anything more about it. And some people, while they considered the story, it just didn't make sense. Mark was walking home at 4.30 a.m. How would he cross paths with a couple of guys from a tavern on their way to a pier who, if the story was true, had to get Mark to the pier, start a fight, shoot him, and then drive him to Brown Road and dump him next to the street in time to be found at 6.30 a.m. But the drunk who told that story to Mark's Uncle Jim abruptly quit his job and left town. He died in 2018, and Uncle Jim is still convinced that's what happened. Mark's sister, however, thinks her brother has been guiding her to the real killer. Angela said she talks to him all the time, and one night she went to his grave and said, you have to help me get information. That night, she watched the news and saw a special on the 16-month killing spree by Anthony and Nathaniel Cook. It seemed like a sign. There's one other thing people need to keep in mind when trying to theorize about what happened the night Mark died. He was found on Brown Road, but from where he left on Howard Road, Brown was too far. It was more than a half mile past his home. It seemed almost certainly he had been in a car, either forced or possibly accepting a ride, although those who know him said it would be out of character for him to take a ride from strangers. Either way, this car would have continued down Route 2 from Howard to Lyon, then turn on to Lyon and go straight past Mark's house, then turn on to Brown where Mark's body was found. Angela said maybe that's when her brother realized he was in trouble, when the driver went past his house, and maybe he tried to escape the car and ran and took two gunshots to the back to stop him before the assailant put three more into his head. Records suggest authorities considered and dismissed the idea that the Cooks were involved. But that was early on. More recently, Detective Lutke clarified to say nobody has really been ruled out. Last year, the detective said new ballistic tests were being done, and he was awaiting DNA results without further explanation of what that DNA came from. If they solve the murder of Mark DiStefano, he won't have a lot of family left to hear it. His family has endured one tragic loss after another. Mark's baby sister, Jackie, died in 2001 of breast cancer at the age of 34. His older brother, Mike, died of a heart attack in 2008. Mark's other sister, Angie, she lost her husband, Luke, in 2004. Their father, Angelo, died in 2016. And their mom, Billy, now rests next to Mark in the Oakwood Cemetery. She died in 2013. On her deathbed, Billy told her daughter, Angie, 
keep fighting for an answer. Angie promised she would. Angie, who was less than a year older than her brother Mark, is the last remaining member of her immediate family. And she desperately wants to fulfill her mom's dying wish, she told Channel 11 News last year. My family's all gone now. I have nothing left I can give them. This is all I can give them. Man, Steve, I feel so bad for this woman. I sure wish they could solve this one for her. I mean, she's lost both her parents, all her siblings, even her husband. It's like she's the last sentinel, you know, standing guard, waiting for the answer. My heart just breaks for her. Right. She went through this traumatic experience with her brother, and it just seems like everything started collapsing after that. I just hope there's some closure soon. I do, too. And, you know, also, even though she thinks her brother was sending her a message about the cooks, I don't know. Sounds like they, you know, from the deal they made, they were being given a free pass for all but one of their homicides. So they really had nothing to lose by adding him to the list if they were responsible. When you hear what they confessed doing to that 12-year-old girl in the basement of the abandoned theater, there just doesn't seem to be any reason for them not to admit to shooting Mark DiStefano. I remember a detective once saying, people want a serial killer to be responsible. It's easier to think there are just a handful of evil people running around than a knowledge that there may be a lot of bad people capable of murder. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't want to believe that. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Jessica Hannon began her music career at the age of 12 and even inked a two-year record deal with Sonic Records at the age of 13. Throughout her teenage years, she was touring the state a lot. And that's where her band's energy has been in recent years, on the stage, opening for some big names in country, and performing Jessica's own originals. Jessica's roots are in Jeromesville. That's a small village in Ashland County, but her career has her spending a lot of time in Nashville. Keep up with her on her website, jessicahannon.com, and be sure to follow her on Facebook and Twitter. The song we're playing tonight is one of her favorites, so Steve, let's give it a spin. You got it. Here's Dawn by the Bonfire by Jessica Hannon, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
could Down by the bonfire We'll be here till the sun comes up If we're kinda loud, that's fine with us The sheriff comes around, we'll pass him a jug Down by the bonfire Throw another log on And watch the sparks for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.